My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Marion McKeown is on the line to update us on a week in America that saw the Ghislaine Maxwell trial take a new twist. Mark Meadows sue the House January 6th committee when it moved forward contempt charges against him. And a story Marion is currently writing for the Sunday Business Post on Alice Siebel's apology and exoneration to Anthony Broadwater, the man wrongly accused, convicted and served 16 years for her rape while at Syracuse University. Marion, I was going to say we should start with the Maxwell trial, but I think we'll get to that later. Just a quick reminder that what you're listening to here is the mini version of the Irishman in America podcast from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. To hear the full show each week, gain access to hundreds of hours of interviews and exclusive access to this weekend's Jack Whitehall chat with sound and picture for the first time. Support Irishman Abroad on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. The Seaball story is just hard to wrap your brain around. Marianne, where do you start with a story like this? So much, so much hurt and so much pain caused. But this week is obviously the beginning of a new life for Anthony Broadwater. Yeah, you know, Giles, the question of where to start, I think it is a good question because this is such a, an awful story on so many levels with two victims here, two people whose lives were destroyed, who did nothing to deserve it in either case. Uh, but then it raises all kinds of really disturbing questions about the coverage um, and of, of this. Okay, we, I, we'll get into it in a moment, but I, I do want to preface it by saying that, that I, I think I reread the book that's at the centre of this controversy, and I have to say, it really is jarring knowing what we know now, but it's also jarring anyway, the way that the, this uh, memoir was written. And I think it also says something about memoirs that has made me really uncomfortable and the lack of fact checking mm. and the, you know, the subjectivity of them and industry and really doesn't need to take a long hard look that it didn't take after the James Frey controversy, which we can also chat about and really do something about about regulating what people are writing in. I don't mean regulating, that sounds awful, but fact checking. Just yeah. just fact checking would do. Okay. Because so, the book so the book started. Yeah, let's talk about the the well where I'm keen to because there's a lot of people coming to this, Marion, who have no clue of what this story is. I certainly didn't know it until you mentioned it. So really start us out with the very basics of this. Okay. 
Right. So in 1981, Alice Siebold was an 18-year-old college student in Syracuse University. Alice Siebold now, for the listeners who recognise the name, and probably many of them will, is an internationally renowned best-selling author. She was the author of The Lovely Bones, which was a huge success in 2002 when it was published, sold 10 million copies, uh, was made into a film starring Saoirse Ronan, Oscar-nominated film back in 2009. But before that book, her career was launched on foot of a memoir that she wrote in 1999. Now, this memoir will take us back to 1981, which is when the story initially started. And it's a horrific story. She was an 18-year-old student at the time in Syracuse University. She was in her first year in college. By her account, a very naive young 18-year-old, hadn't really had any boyfriends, didn't know anything about sex. Uh, She was coming home one evening and she was attacked from behind by a stranger who dragged her into a pedestrian tunnel near the college campus. She was savagely beaten and raped. Now, the details of those hours of her life are so harrowing that that really they're so distressing to read and she spares no detail and I think when she wrote this book she wrote this book when she was her memoir when she was 36 she spares no detail on what happened to her because I think what she wants to do is twofold at that time she wants to bring home the full horror of the violence of a rape and a, and a really violent assault that, on top of the rape. And also she wants to, I think, and what she said at the time was to show other rape survivors that, look, this is, it is awful, yes, and but you can get better. You can build a life. And what you should do is you should get help and you should do everything you can to confront your accuser through the legal system and bring them to justice. So this is what she believed at the time she set about doing. And this is what her memoir, which was hugely successful and critically acclaimed, also documents. Now, the memoir is called Lucky. She said it was called Lucky because a policeman that she went to, uh, when she initially reported, said to her, well, you were lucky. Another girl was found murdered in that tunnel a couple of months ago. So that was kind of a summary of the mm. attitude of the police at the time. She, Her parents couldn't deal with it. It was 1981. They couldn't deal with the fact that their daughter was raped. They sent her, they outsourced the problem, sent her to a psychologist who said to her, well, I suppose now, at, you know, you're a you know, you, you've experienced sex. So this was the attitude that she was confronted with in 1981. But Alice Siebold believed that her rapist was a black man who she had never met before. And now she went to the police. She took, gave him this information. She went home for a couple of months to recover. She came back to Syracuse. And five months later, she was walking down the street. And she saw, and this is such an appalling trope and a, and a, and a cliche in some ways, but she saw a black man who was on the street. He was a former Marine, a 20-year-old guy called Anthony Broadwater, honorably discharged from the Marines, had come home to his family home in Syracuse. She saw him, and to her, he was a black man, which meant, and let's not sugarcoat that he must have been her rapist, because she took the view, like so many people have taken and still take to this day, that, you know, He was black, therefore it was probably him. So she went to the police. The police rounded up all of the young black men in that area, which in itself was an atrocious thing to do. And they then um, came up with the idea that it was Broadwater, that he was the guy who most closely fitted uh, the description of what she had said. 
So the man that she now believes raped her, Anthony Broadwater, is put into a lineup which includes four other young black men of around his age and height. She doesn't pick out Anthony Broadwater. In fact, she picks out an entirely different man who's also innocent, by the way, who also um, did nothing wrong, who just happened to be in the lineup. Luckily for him, he had an alibi. Uh, But then the prosecution decide that the evidence against Anthony Broadwater is so flimsy as to be almost non-existent. This evidence would not be admitted in a court today. The only other evidence they had was based on a hair. There was a junk science done in the 19, early 1980s called microscopic hair analysis. It's now being discredited. The Department of Justice now won't let it inside a courtroom in America. But that was the only other evidence they had linking Broadwater to the crime. So can I stop you there? Because uh, that... Um will immediately connect some listeners back to our conversations with uh, the attorney Jerry Buting, who worked on the Stephen Avery trial. Now, that hair follicle examination stuff is what put him in prison in the first place. The first time he went to prison, when he was wrongfully convicted of a rape and he was about to receive this huge compensation payment. It was that very science that put him in there, too. But I'm confused there on this issue of she identifies number five in the lineup. How, if she identified someone other than Anthony Broadwater, did he wind up in court with her identifying him there? Like, I don't know what the leap is from picking out number five to going to court with this follicle science, which has now been proven to be utter BS. Absolutely. Okay. So the link there, the link, there was no link effectively, but the prosecution, putting this in the context of 1981, Syracuse College is a rich white kids college in, in upstate New York. It costs, it, it charges Ivy League fees, basically. It, char- it costs about $70,000 a year to go there as an undergraduate. It's a private college, lots of very distinctive alumni, you know, lots of famous people who went there, but it is a rich white kids college. Now, the outrage that was caused by these parents who were paying 70 grand a year to have their kids in this college, most of whom were very entitled, and the fact that it, it, uh, so what was presented to them was that there was a black man going around raping their teenage student daughters, and there was an outcry, and they were demanding that this person be found. That, And you know what? Not so much this person be found, but a person be found, as it turned out, a black man be found and be prosecuted and convicted of this crime. So the police are under huge pressure. The prosecution are under huge pressure. This does not excuse what happened next, which is frankly on the face of, I believe, criminal. So the, the um, number five, had an alibi, watertight alibi, so the prosecution could not go after him. Anthony Broadwater did not have an alibi. The police believed that it was him for no reasons that they could hold up in court. So the prosecution at that point persuades Alice Siebold that, look, the reason you picked this guy out was that he was deliberately attracting your attention. He is a friend of Broadwater's and Broadwater, he agreed that he would go in there and look really menacing so that you become intimidated by him and you would believe he was the guy. In fact, he was doing this to get his buddy off the hook because he knew he had an alibi. So this is what she was told by the prosecutor at the time. And again, this is a 
in my view, there's at least evidence that this prosecutor committed a crime in trying to make her fit her identification to a perfectly innocent black man. So there you have it. That's your taste of the Irishman in America for this week with Marion McKeown. Come on over and hear the rest of the conversation by becoming a member at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and enjoy all these conversations in full, including our feature interview every Sunday and our back catalogue of nearly eight years of interviews at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.